Hello, listeners. This episode originally aired in November of 2016, and we're rebroadcasting it because it's about the conflict between President Donald Trump and the press. So stay tuned. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture. All while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, Ellie Mistal. How are you, man? Fuck! I assume that's because, you, as you were telling me earlier, your child had uh, defecated on you earlier today. Nope. Nope. I, oh, would take, oh, okay. I would take every diaper full of poop in the world, on my bed, on my on my uh, headboard, um, if I could change the results of this election. Yeah. Okay. Like I would take that for America. I would take every baby's dirty diaper every morning for America. Wow. Oh. Okay. Well, I mean, that's that's course, a that's a that's a that's a statement there. Of course, I'm African American, so America would never take that deal. Well, I mean, my it's, money's no good here. Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's. It's also not a deal that like anyone can actually do. Like it's not like a functional deal, right? Like we don't we don't operate in that way. How do we operate, Joe? You're white. You tell me. How do we operate? How how does this work now? Um, I mean, right now we uh we deal with a uh, a few years of fairly incompetent, largely alt right leadership, and uh, move on from there. Um, certainly. Certainly not an ideal world, but uh, hey. You realize that not all of us are going to survive this, right? Like, I, oh, God, no, 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 no. Many of us are going to die. Yeah. It's the, uh, I actually think of the the Simpsons sequence uh, when they go to the summer camp, and there's a point where she's like, I, Lisa says, I feel like I'm afraid I'm, we're going to die. And Bart says, we're all going to die, Lise. And she says, I meant soon. And he said, so did I. <laughs> That's, that sums this up. So, yeah, my, no. Um, my, only, that, my, only, that uh, my only strain of hope here is, and uh, for, for, you, for you listeners who, who know me well, um, you, you know that my, uh, or at least follow me on Facebook, um, you know that I named my uh, first son Claudius after uh, the Robert Graves no- novel, I, Claudius. Um, near the end of the novel, when Claudius is emperor of Rome, um, and, he, and he, Claudius had, had always wanted Rome to be a republic um, and found himself kind of as an emperor, somewhat reluctantly, um, as he's thinking about his successor, he starts repeating almost in a senile way, let all the poisons that lurk in the mud hatch out. And that's how I feel. That's, that's how I feel that the only, the only way forward is, you know, the only good thing is that now these people, these motherfuckers, these, these, this, the white supremacists, now they're going to get what they want. Now they're going to get what they've always wanted. And, uh, and we'll see, we'll, we'll see how the rest of America likes living in that world. Now and that of course is, that of course is Claudius Caesar who handed over power to Nero. Exactly. Exactly. That was his, that yeah. was good job. Right. And good job. well, in from Claudius, good, mo- good life model from Claudius's perspective, Nero would be so bad that the Roman people would revolt and demand a Republic. 
Um, yeah, of course it didn't. Or his or his wife poisoned him. One or the other. Um, <laughs> so well, I am talking uh, yeah, about a novel. Yeah, well, lower life novel historical events. It, they all kind of play together. Uh, yeah, no. So that uh, that all happened. Um, so we were going to talk about kind of moving past the fact that it happened and into some of the stuff about what what it might mean. And you've talked before. You and I have run some events. We talked. Uh, we went some, to some law schools to talk about the Supreme, upcoming Supreme Court term, which we thought would be very different. But one thing you mentioned at those always was that you were very concerned about regardless of which presidential candidate won, that there might be an upcoming assault on something of the free, some freedom of the press uh, standards that we all take for granted. Yes, and I, I don't take them for granted. I know that it is, I am lucky to live in a place where I can call the president-elect a racist motherfucker um, and not have uh, the cops kind of bashing down my door um, as soon as I say that on air. Um, but I am worried about whether that. or not those freedoms uh, will will maintain. And as you said correctly, Joe, I was worried about that somewhat regardless of who was elected. Um, if Hillary elected, we would have elected somebody who was notoriously um, uh, combative with the media um, and perhaps has no love for uh, you know standards such as um, Times v. Sullivan, New York Times v. Sullivan, which uh, which is so important. Um, now that Trump is here, I mean, this this guy is has bragged about wanting to open up the libel laws and especially you know the thing that pisses him off most right is our ability as as the as a press person um to have celebrities and other public people have to meet a really high standard um before they can sue us um for defamation or libel or whatever um trump hates that and now he's gonna get his way so if you hear somebody, yeah. if 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 you hear <laughs> if you hear my windows breaking, that's the cops coming for me. Right. Well, um, yes. Uh, hopefully, we don't hear that now because the microphone is fairly sensitive. So we're trying to get a clean a clean recording here. Um, so transitioning from that, though, that's why we brought on the guest that we brought on today. So we we have with us Charles Glasser, who's uh, does well lots of things with regards to the media and law. Uh, he, teaches at NYU School of Journalism. He's been in the, he's been a reporter on that side of the media world, but he's also been a lawyer working in the past with Bloomberg on making sure that they they uphold media ethics, I guess. He's the editor of the International Libel and Privacy Handbook, and we thought that he's probably the right person to bring on to talk about what the next few years of libel, media ethics, uh the relationship of the president to the media, et cetera, is going to be like. So welcome to the show, Charles. Hey, thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> you, you set it up pretty nicely. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I, uh, Ellie, I, I, I wouldn't worry about uh, brick bats being thrown through your window uh, anytime soon. Uh, uh, it's, it's always good to, you know, be vigilant and, and you know, uh, you want to freak out? Go ahead, you know, freak out. But uh, I'm, I'm actually, uh, and and it, by way of disclosure here, I, I, I did not vote for either uh, uh, Secretary Clinton or uh, Mr. Trump. Just so we get that out of the way. But um, uh, I have been in in the media industry uh, as a reporter and as a lawyer. I was in house. I was global media counsel actually at Bloomberg for 14 years. Um, 
so yeah, I've got some pretty good perspective on it. Um, I, if if I could just throw something out there that I think uh, might uh, might give you a, sleep maybe half a wink better, Ellie is. Uh, there's a there's a, 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 a phrase going around that I, I quite find interesting. I, I, I think it's 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 actually pretty accurate, especially to this point. Trump's detractors take him literally, but don't take him seriously, and Trump's supporters take him seriously, but don't take him literally. Now there is you could do hours hours of shows about whether, uh, you know, having a game show president is a good thing or a bad thing. Italy survived having a celebrity uh, president or prime minister. Uh, in, in, I mean, Italy's always messed up, but uh, I, this guy, frankly, in, in my view, is much more Berlusconi than he is Hitler. Um, and uh, he... Uh, did, you, did you guys catch the... Uh, the uh, tweets that the uh, New York Times sent out during his uh, his meeting yesterday, uh, Trump's meeting Ama- with the New York Times. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I, I mean, that kind of goes to my point. Um, this is a guy, and by the way, again, full disclosure, uh, the Washington Post uh, disc- uh, wrote about my personal uh, battles with Mr. Trump. Uh, uh, he uh, threatened to sue my reporters uh, in libel and wrote what I would call an incoherent screed, <laughs> putting it nicely to me. That was uh, very, very, and this is before he was running. And he, the guy really does talk that way. It's really freakish, you know, you know, uh, sad. He ends, he ends every paragraph with an ejaculatory adverb. <laughs> sad, <laughs> pathetic. You know, it's, he, the guy really does talk that way. Um, but all that being said, uh, I think with regards to the First Amendment and, and where do we stand, uh, and I know, Ellie, you're not going to like this, but, you know, we've got to contextualize some things here. Um, Jill Abramson, hardly a Trump supporter, hardly an alt-right nut, um, and Ron Fournier, again, a very middle-of-the-road guy right. and a great political reporter who probably you know, as experienced as anybody I know out there, among many others, called the recent eight years the worst years for journalism and particularly transparency that they'd ever seen. Um, I don't mind reminding you that President Hope and Change uh, wiretapped reporters, intercepted emails, uh, did a lot of stuff that was downright Nixonian, Nixonian. Uh, and that's by no way justifying Trump or or his threats or bullying, as Susan Sager wrote in the ABA Journal. You know, libel bullying and all that. It's not to excuse that, but but do let's get keep a little perspective here. Um, uh, so in the Times talk, you know, in the talk yesterday, you know, they asked him, and I thought they they did a pretty good job, at least from what I could get out of it. They they said, uh, well, you know. Don't you realize that this actual malice thing might actually be used against you sometime? You know that it's 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 actually uh, you know this is something you might want to keep. And his comment was something I, it, I don't want to say conciliatory. I mean, when he made that comment about you know that might be true or you might be right or I hadn't really yeah. thought about it. Does that how how would you have characterized that remark? That. 
that was that was my take on it. He said something like, "Wow, I never really thought about that. I'd have to look back at that or something like that." But it played into another thing that I saw from the Times write up of it, which was that they were somewhat astounded by how thinly thought out a lot of his positions were. Oh, including absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and 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 that I mean, and that. Oh spoke, no, you the know, Times was astounded. Well, of course they were. <laughs> the Times, yeah, but the <laughs> Times, in 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 all fairness, and I think. I think Beckay even even acknowledged this on 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 sad sad Wednesday um, after the election. I call it sad sad Wednesday. Um, you know, I mean, he had done this sort of you know that, that or was it actually it was Salzberger's letter, wasn't it? Not Beckay saying you know we need to reaffirm ourselves and look a little deeper, more introspection, yada yada yada. And and frankly, if the Times were all that shocked, then I think. At, at how poorly thought out and how maybe, you know, uh, Trump might reconsider things, then I do think that there's some currency to the notion that, you know, maybe you guys weren't really, you didn't really have a good bead on him, you know? This was the outrage election, right? I mean, every time somebody said something, whether it be Hillary or, or Trump, every time somebody said something, everybody flipped out and reacted, right? It would be... You know, just like, and it's still going on. You know, the the slightest bump in the road, and everybody freaks out. Um, and you know, if if you if you followed him closely, and or in my case, where you've had personal experience with the guy, I think you realize that there was some considerable currency to the the I think much more solid argument that the Clinton camp put out there is about temperament. You know, is this is this guy suitably tempered to to be the leader of the free world, as it were? And I thought I thought that's a very valid and important question. Um, that being said, uh, you know, it goes back to his supporters not taking him literally, and this yep. is a guy. This is, I mean, really, the smartest thing Kellyanne Conway did was take the BlackBerry away from him. You know, I mean, um, so 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 can uh, I, as to the first, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So can I tell you why I think most of that is bullshit? <laughs> first of all, first of all, I think it, it's 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 really important. I think for me at this point um, to stand against the kind of false equivalency reporting. Um, that has happened. Oh, that's so the old buzzword. That's the um, hold it, hold during... it. Stay, stay, stay current. The new buzzword is normalization. False equivalency. Yeah, no, I... So three weeks yeah. ago. No, I'm going We're gonna get to normalization in a second. But <laughs> but when you talk, but when you talk about uh, uh, President Hope and change, you know what wasn't happening to reporters during Obama's administration? They weren't being, uh, Jewish reporters were not being singled out on Twitter by white supremacists um, just as Wrong. they try to go After about their, the their business. After the Madoff case, the, no, I no, defended the, reporters the, the whole bracketing who got anti-Semitic thing started, hate the, mail the, from the, people. The three parentheses things that started happening to Jewish reporters because of a Chrome app or whatever, that wasn't happening in 2010. So when you talk about uh, about Wait, you're telling me that anti-Semitism yeah, is new? No, I'm not saying that it's new, but I'm saying the specific attack on the press that's going to come at Jewish reporters, minority reporters, and female reporters is going to be ratcheted up to 11 under the Trump administration. And we can't talk about how Trump will 
deal with the press without acknowledging that he is going to deal with minority members in the press differently than he's going to deal with white people in the press. Well, that's that's hysterical conjecture. Well, what's it? Wait, I mean, doesn't that? I mean, that glosses it, it, over a lot of. I'm not glossing over it. I'm saying well, that okay, it was. First I'm off, saying that wherever it was in 2010, all that's happening is that it's going to go to 11 in 2017. And while you can sit there and feel very confident that... Well, I, you know, we can make... A, your track record on predictions isn't exactly, you know, uh, spot on. Otherwise, we'd, we'd be waiting for the coronation on the 20th, okay? And I can tell right. you... Yeah, we all got that wrong. Uh, from personal experience, um, I mean, I'm not joking. When Bernie Madoff went to jail... Uh, or was charged, actually, and, and the scope of his misdeeds were, was, you know, finally being reported. I personally had to retain, I was still running Bloomberg, I still, I had to retain security people to look into threats that some of our Jewish op-ed writers were getting, because you Jews steal money, you know, you can imagine the kind of nuts that are out there, you know, you know that. And, um... I, I hardly need to tell you that even going back further, what kind of racist garbage people like Earl Caldwell used to get in the mail every time he dared write a story exposing, you know, police brutality or whatever. That's, I, I'm not saying, I don't think anybody in their right mind denies that, that it happens. And I will even, I personally, and look, man, and you guys know I'm not defending any of that nonsense. The, the, uh, I'll even go as far as to say, yeah, there may have been an emboldened uptick. Although my personal theory, like when you see some of the graffiti and stuff, you know, go go for the simplest answer, you know, Occam's Razor and all that. I personally think a lot of it is drunk 16-year-olds, but that doesn't make it right, obviously. But look, you're, you're, you're projecting forward this sort of police state cracking down on minority reporters um, by dint of, uh, of, of, you know, you're not unreasonably based. I, I mean, I certainly grant you that not you're not unreasonably based concerns about some of the people, uh, that, uh, Mr. Trump has surrounded himself with. Now he has in his defense, I suppose, or in for fairness sakes, I mean, he has several times now said, look, these people don't speak for me. And you've got to admit it would be dumb and a waste of time and unfair to President Obama every time some nut on Twitter posts an over-the-top, you know, Black Lives Matter sort of, you know, kill all the white people. Well, Obama's not obligated to, to, to but, denounce well, each but and that's, every one. Come on. Well, that's, that's incredibly different. That's incredibly different, though, right? Like, one of these, one of these institutions is an, well, one of these is a hierarchical institution that has that has, you know, holds these sort these rallies that we're seeing pictures of. They have media outlets that they own. They are Which they're, they're a presence that, that is start, oh, they oh, I mean the a lot these alt white alt right organizations that have platforms in bright Okay, let me ask like you a question. And, I'm, I'm being very serious. Yeah. Do you believe yeah. that the alt right is like an organized centralized thing? Like it's a group? Oh no, it's it's not well sort of. It's I think that it is I think that it is a conglomeration of it's a conglomeration of loosely organized groups. For instance, you have these folks showing up at at 
the the rally that we saw pictures of 200, earlier. 200 people, yeah. They all may be from different organizations. This, this is the part where you try to say that the actual white supremacists that are cresting Trump to power aren't really that important, or there aren't that many of them, or they don't really matter. And you try to find some way to, you're not trying to justify their behavior, but you're trying to minimize their impact. Well, I'm not minimizing their impact. I'm saying that that, that silencing them and freaking out about them is not the way to defeat them. And here we go to our friend, the First Amendment. And that, that's fair. And that's where I actually want to transition, because I think you said something earlier that I wanted to get back to that actually speaks directly to this, right? Yeah. To what extent does the fact that the last administration reflected a, and built a legal case for a lot of troubling interventions in media, wiretapping, as you said, and so on and so forth. The way in which those sorts of executive overreaches became somewhat institutionalized over the last eight years, what concerns should we have that those now in different hands can be utilized in a much more destructive way? Okay, well, actually, uh, that's, that's a great question. And, 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 and this is why, believe it or not, I'm actually fairly optimistic. And this goes even to the more overarching, you know, the... the the uh, Margaret Sullivan uh, uh, over at the Post, formerly the ombudsman at the Times, public editor at the Times, wrote a, a, a very piercing, I thought, uh, column about this, uh, holding the TV executives uh, to shame, really, to scorn for their having this off-the-record meeting, you know, where allegedly Trump, because uh, I wasn't there, but, you know, he really dressed them down and yelled at them. Um, and, and Margaret, I thought, did a great job pointing out how, you know, these cozy off-the-record things, that's just not journalism. That's not how we do it. Um, uh, you're absolutely right that the, uh, you want to talk about normalization, the <clears throat> fact that um, uh, DOJ or DIA or CIA or NSA or any other branch of the government can go into a FISA court and pretty much get your phone records, you as a reporter, and, you know, actually try and, and, and do phishing or uh, a pose as an Associated Press reporter, any one of a number of really despicable acts um, to, to try and, and pierce um, the, the protections for reporters that we've you know, that we're supposed to be enjoying. Um, and yeah, there's been a very bad precedent set for that. And at the same time, I'm kind of optimistic, and I'll tell you why. Because the people freaking out about, I mean, I laughed when, when Trump snuck out of the, uh, out of his golden plated, you know, that, that, that monstrosity Trump Tower, you know, that like, somebody mm -hmm. went in there and said, that doesn't look expensive enough. Put some gold over there. You know, that really ugly thing. So he right. snuck out, right, and had his steak dinner and the press, the press pool freaked out because he didn't, didn't bring them along, right? I thought that was very, very telling. And we have had too cozy and too kissy face a relationship between national media and the administration. And we need to get back to some basics here. If you are a journalist, a politician is your sworn enemy, period. And our job is to cover an administration, not cover for it. You know? And yeah. we, 
our job is to is you know if he we should Glenn Greenwald wrote a really really sharp I don't agree with Glenn on a lot of stuff. I was just going to quote that. Yeah, yeah. Glenn's article was spot on. It's like it was great. Dear, dear Mister Politician, fuck you. you. You need us more than we need you. You know we're going to cover what you say and do. This guy just spent 18 months playing the largely white mainstream media like a freaking harpsichord. And you're confident, even hopeful, that now, now they're going to start holding him to account. Really? Oh, absolutely. They're not going to get the coziness. They have no love for him. I mean, I got to tell you, look at his perspective. And you could see, if you look at his I don't want to play amateur psychologist, so I won't say his sociopathic nature. I'm just going to say, you look at his pattern of conduct, right? This is a guy who feels that they're all unfair and they're all stacked against him, right? So when he meets with them, he figures, well, what has he got to lose by playing hardball? And let's face it. Do you really think, honestly, black or white isn't the issue. Do you really think that any of the mainstream reporters worth half a grain of salt are going to start playing access journalism and cozy journalism and start treating him, you know, nice, nice the way he wants. Cause all he wants is public relations. He doesn't want news. Well, that ain't going to happen. They're not going to start treating him the way he wants because what no. he wants is fellatio on demand. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So screw that and screw him. Cover but, him. But that doesn't mean cover gonna, what he says that, that and does. They're not going to be nice to him. They're Say gonna, what? They're, 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 that doesn't mean they're going to be nice to him. They already play his game. He already played them, as, as you point, as we're all pointing out, he already played them with the off-the-record bullshit um, with, yep. the, with the network television anchors. He already played them with the Hamilton tweets. He's going to continue playing them with the Hamilton tweets. And I have absolutely no confidence in the ability of mainstream media to hold him accountable for his actions, I don't even have any conf- confidence in their ability to accurately explain what he's doing. Well, I don't know. I think Fahrenheit's done some great reporting, and the journals. Done, I think there's some good reporting out there, and I think, I mean, provided that the news organizations have the resources to do it, I think we are going to see a return, uh, and hopefully a renaissance of investigative reporting and hard-hitting reporting about a government. Because you sure as fuck didn't see that with Fast and Furious. You sure as fuck didn't see that on Operation Choke Point. You sure as fuck didn't see that on what they did to James Rison. You sure as fuck didn't see it on the Department of Justice slow-walking the, the, the uh, voter suppression uh, allegations that were made in the, in the, uh, in, you know, with the Black Panthers standing with nightsticks in front of a voting booth. Now, whether you think those stories have, oh, yeah, have, three times it, that whether happened. you think those yeah. stories have granularity or not isn't the point. The fact is that the news organizations did not dedicate any kind of real resources to those. And I'm hopeful that, okay, now we got a guy in the White House who's really bent over. He's, I, th- I think they're in a good position to really sock it to him hard. Well, uh, here's where they're I... Not, they're, they're not going to get access oh. to journalism. Can I ask a question this way, though? Why do you think that that matters? Um, for instance, this weekend, apparently, the mainstream media just figured out that fake news was a thing. Um, welcome to the fucking party, yeah. guys, right? Um, I know. 
and they still can't figure it out. Have you seen what their list of corrective measures is? Yes. I mean, it's, They're begging to be pwned still. So, yeah. so why do we even think that what the media – and we can disagree about whether or not the media will be effective, has been effective, can be more effective in the future. Why do we think that it's right. going to matter what the media says about this guy? Well, that's a that's a great question, and I, I had a conversation uh, with with somebody recently about this. Um, actually, it was uh, it was uh, uh, Judy Miller uh, came to my my I teach graduate school by the way at the NYU grad, uh, Graduate School of Journalism, and we did a, a module on confidential sourcing and what it's like to go to jail. So she can speak very very uh, uh, directly to that. And um, afterwards, we had a conversation, and, and we, were, we were all talking about, uh, you know, has the press lost its ability to impact, which is really what you're asking. Like, so what if the press reports it? And, you know, I have to say, I'm of two minds about that. I'm not really, I haven't come down really hard one way or the other. I think it takes some real thought. But let me answer the question with a question. Is it the media's role to be a kingmaker? Is it the media's role to decide who should and shouldn't be elected? Or is it the media's role? Do you, do you guys know the first, canon, the first canon of the SPJ ethics principles? Do you know what that is? No, no, no. I, no I'm taking that silence as a no. No, I no. The SPJ canon, the first rule, seek truth and report it. That's the rule. It, the canon. It's not trying to influence the outcome to what you think is better, because that's paternalism. That can't be right. Or, and it isn't try and install in power people who will serve your interests. That's not it. That can't be right. Seek truth and report it. Now, your question about, and, and look, this is what a lot of people felt even going into Sad, Sad Wednesday, was how can America buy this? Are we that stupid? You know? And let me ask you, Ellie, this is a great, I mean, this is something that I've been wrestling with. I see so many people saying, oh, fake news. How can people be so stupid? Surely you're not suggesting a literacy test for voting. I remember the last, I'm old enough to remember the last time that happened. We called it Jim Crow. So instead of asking black people to read some, you know, medieval Latin document and then say, oh, sorry there, boy, you can't vote, you know. So now it's, well, do you read The New Yorker? Oh, you don't know David Remnick? Sorry, you don't get to vote. I, I, and I'm actually getting that. I, I don't even see how you're... I'm actually hearing that. ...going no, from I, one to the other. No, I actually do see the issue there. And I, I think that, that there is obviously something very troubling about saying that People who aren't caught. Can you white explain that connection for me? Oh, Joe? oh no. The the, ar- the argument is that the way in which people are trying to deal with fake news is by saying, "Oh, well, if you don't, you don't have these certain academic requirements and read these sources that are the good sources, then you shouldn't be able to vote." And that is incredibly fraught with the opportunity for all sorts of mischief. That is what Charles is talking about, which I think is fair. I also don't. And re- indeed, if it were state, if you look at guidelines that that are being bantered around yeah um i know you know look as a constant i've litigated many constitutional cases and you guys would be the first to admit that were it state action they would they would fail a oh, constitutional yeah. challenge for being content-based overbroad and not narrowly tailored yeah right no no so, doubt about it which is no doubt nobody about is it. talking about so that, state and action. Sort of leaves us 
Nobody's well, talking about. No, Sting. we're not. But no, we're talking. Uh, no, it, right. But no, they, but the issue is that the problem here is not any of these fake news in a lot of ways, because I also don't think one thing about how Facebook operates is it's not like that fake news was getting in front of people whose minds were potentially getting changed. It is the way that algorithm operates. It's a bunch. Yeah. It's a bunch of Nazis sharing Nazi stuff, you know? Right. No, you're quite right. And I I was joking all through the election that, that if you could, that there were probably maybe 50 people who were undecided a week before the election, you know, you're, you're quite right. And there is a lot of confirmation bias and indeed in social media, people tend to read the things that they want to read and that, that, you know, with which they agree. But, but the, the larger point though, beyond fake news and social media is, you know, I hear uh, people decrying, you know, why aren't I, these are media people saying, why didn't we have the impact? Why didn't they listen to Kurt Farenthold? Why didn't they listen to, you know, this guy and that guy exposing Trump as a lousy businessman, as a con man, as a fraud? These are all their adjectives, but, but they are all based, you know, they're, they're not, they're not without some foundation, right? I mean, you'll agree with me there, right? Surely. surely. Yeah. Yeah. So, why didn't we listen? Well, Americans must be dumb. And I find personally, I find I find that approach with regard to free speech and and in general to be horrifically paternalistic, horrifically dehumanizing. Believe it or not, you have to go back to John Locke and people like that, but you have to be committed to the idea that false speech must be heard so that we can find true speech. And that you will not know the truth unless you have falsity by which to compare it to. This is the, this is the touchstone. This is the motive force of the Constitution, uh, at least with regard to free speech. Why can't both things be true? Why can't we both say that we respect and defend speech and all of its different outlets and expressions? With some um, limitation, even, obviously, even, you know. Even false speech? Why can't we both say that we defend even false speech and say that Americans are fucking idiots. Like, why can't both of those be, be true? Oh, I think they can be true. I, I think that's, I, I, I don't think, I, I, you're not going to get a whole hell of a lot of an argument from me about that. You know, I mean, uh, you know, we, we, you know, it's a republic if we can keep it, you know, and how we've managed to hang on for these 200 plus years, you know, I mean, we've, we've had some pretty bad ideas and some pretty bad ideas have been codified. I, uh, you're the last person I'd lecture about uh, Dred Scott or Buck v. Bell, right. Right? right? You know, we've we've had some pretty bad ideas in the past. You know, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, not not exactly our finest hour. But you know, we're going to make mistakes, and 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 it is up to a free and independent press to point out those mistakes. The the thing. That's really because I did want to make sure that we touched, at least I touched on on something that you had raised earlier, and that's Trump's when he was he was throwing red meat to the groundlings, if I can mix my metaphors a little bit, um, when he was like, "We're going to open up the libel laws," and everybody freaked out. Um, a very good friend of mine, and I commend you to read it. It's in the New Jersey Law Journal uh, last week. Uh, Bruce Rosen, one of the a really terrific guy and a and a very skilled media litigator and also a former reporter, um, wrote an article about how remarkably difficult 
in practical terms, it would be to move backwards from Times v. Sullivan. Um, I think it would be almost impossible. I, I haven't really put my mind to it, but I think it would be almost impossible to draft legislation that would not be unconstitutional. You know, legislation trying to do that. Um, and uh, there's also a little bit more optimism uh, in, in, in another sense uh, to be had there. Look, you have to, another disclosure, I'm a neurotic Jew, so my default position is optimism. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it could be worse, you know. <laughs> um, that's just my nature. And, and I think one of the things that, that really, there is some light at the end of the tunnel there. And uh, I, I don't mean to speak cruelly about somebody, but here I go. Look, I don't think Trump, in, in, I don't think he has what we would call book smarts. He doesn't have the ability to sit down and burrow through 300 pages of legislative text. Right? You grant me that? Yeah, right? yes. Okay. And this is a guy who, at best, would delegate things out. And I personally... Uh, and I say this based on intuition, no inside information, just observation and intuition. I think that the legislative portfolio will be largely guided by Mike Pence, who is far more conservative than I would ever be in a nightmare, you know, um, you know, on, on so many issues. But let's be let's let's put put our grown up hats on for a minute and, and go back to a little real politic. You don't get to be a congressman for 18 years and then a governor without learning how the sausage is made. You just don't. You learn how to make deals. You learn how to make things work. You learn how to reach across the aisle. That's number one. Number two, it is, and it has been pointed out here and there, it is worth noting that Mike Pence was journalism's best friend in the House for many years. And not once, but twice sponsored a federal shield law. Okay? And that's... It's and, important and, to point out that Mike Pence was a former radio talk show host. Uh, that's great. You know, I mean, I can't imagine what that was like. Was it the Daily Corn report? <laughs> I'm kidding. So, <laughs> I kid. That's what I do. Um, you know, the corn... He was, you know, Indiana corns. I don't know. What else do they grow there, yeah. right? Cheap, yeah. No, that, yeah, corn, right? So... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, and... Then you have his signaling to the Times that, well, you know, I never thought about that. And I think, Joe, I think I sent you the papers. And I, I've noted yeah. this in social media with some, some irony and amusement. Uh, there is a, a young lady who's a political consultant and talking head named Sherry Jacobus. And she's suing Trump. Uh, Ellie, did you know Trump is being sued for libel right now? Yes. Yeah, and it's in New York. I don't know the details of the suit, but I knew that it was happening. Oh yeah, yeah. No, she she filed she filed the complaint, and he moved. Uh, I don't want to get. He moved for dismissal, thirty to eleven. And I read his papers. Now, and his papers basically defend on hyperbole and rhetoric, which doesn't surprise anybody, you know, because he said all these nasty things about her. She's a dummy or something like that. Um, but I found it very, very interesting and amusing <clears throat> that, you know, his lawyers did a competent enough job and they preserved the issue of actual malice. Donald Trump preserved yeah. the issue of actual malice in his motion to dismiss and in his reply papers, just in case 
you know, he loses uh, his motion to dismiss. And, you know, we live in, in New York, we live in the interlocutory heaven. So he can raise the, the actual malice argument to the, uh, to the first department if he had to. And I find that kind of ironic. There's no estoppel, yeah. you know, in the <laughs> legislative sense. But, you know, you look at what a guy says and then you look at what a guy does, right? I mean, that's true for any of us. And look, the, he's got so much on his plate. I think I, I agree with a lot of folks who think he had no idea what he was getting into. He had no idea how big the job was. And frankly, there are so many more pressing issues, you know, uh, uh, facing him that the idea that he's going to wage some jihad against the press is, it's, let's just say, you know, it's good to be vigilant, but I think it's way premature. And there's another point um, in a conversation. I, I can't remember with whom. I want to say Canaletta, but I, I could be wrong. And there's something else you've got to remember about this guy's personality. If you thought Obama was a narcissist, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is a guy who craves attention. This is a guy who wants to be loved and respected. He wants people to point at him and go, look, there's Donald Trump. You know, he wants to be, he really wants to be loved. You know, I mean, it's a weird neurotic way he goes about it. But this is a guy who craves attention. He loved being on television more than anything else. And I well, could totally get a few years see of it. him actually saturating, saturating the airwaves with, you know, press conferences or direct to audience um, uh, uh, means. Facebook Live. Pardon? Yeah, it's like face, Facebook Live, his version of fireside chat, which I assume involves some garish gold-plated thing. Well, he already did one, and it was it was fairly dry. I don't know if you saw it. His, you know, he yeah, did the, a little YouTube yeah. video, and and Politico did a pretty good article about it, and they were actually very very fair because some people in the press are a little concerned that oh my God, we're going to have an official state organ, and we're going to have an official state you know, sort of media outlet, and it'll be Trump TV, and and he will, you know, and as you pointed out, he would hardly be the first president to reach directly to the voters. And there's nothing wrong with that. Here's the caveat, and this is a, this indeed is a huge First Amendment question, or, or, or something to be vigilant about. I personally have no problem with an official channel, right? If Trump wants to make his own little videos or do his tweets, or have his radio speech, or even a podcast, God only knows. I have no problem with that. The only point is, it becomes a problem when it is the only channel available. See, this is the difference right. between, you know, communist China sure. and the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, and even really today, uh, Russia today is uh, is, you know, ostensibly it's uh, independent but it's a house organ and and opposition viewpoints are not tolerated in Russia in Tur I mean you know what's going on in Turkey right they have sent right, right. armed oh, troops over to take over newspapers and radio stations and being an international lawyer and having the experience I do around the world in in the oppression of free speech I think we're a long way off from that. You know, I really, I, I think, I think even the people you fear 
as Trump supporters, would revolt if Trump sent the National Guard to take over the Washington Post. I got to tell you guys, you know, the libertarians would, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I think that's I think that's true. The, I guess we're we're coming close to we we're a little over what we usually do, but the one one thing I wanted and it kind of segues off of that to throw back in is and this is from a Facebook conversation that both you and I were on actually about the Glenn Greenwald piece. Uh-huh. To the extent you're to the extent you're thinking that um there could be better investigative journalism that like Greenwald's talking about, is there some fear that the access journalism might just be baked into the existence of these public, publicly owned news entities who have to answer to shareholders who therefore have to put on the cozy interviews because that's what people flock to watch and that it's really just these private institutions like a New York Times that have the latitude to do the investigative well, hard-hitting stuff. The New York Times is, is a private institution only to a very limited degree. You know it's a publicly traded company, mm. man. Right. Yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> and that's what all fair. we see, you know, well, editorialists screaming about, about Citizens United. And, and you know, there's right. corporations put, should put have free speech rights. It's like, dude, corporations signs your paycheck, you know. So well, I, put, I, put aside I, that, that nuance. Yeah. I, I, I meant more that is there a risk that the inter entertainment, uh, infotainment kind of takeover of the culture that p- of the consume- media consumer has kind of spoiled the crop for some of these larger outlets. Oh, I see what you're saying. Or, or put another way, yeah. is there any profit to be had in investigative journalism? I mean, that's really... Exactly. I think what yeah, you're that's, asking... Yeah, that's a better way of saying it. Yeah, and, and, that, and, and indeed, that is a, that is a huge problem. Um, some folks, to their great, great credit, have tried to step in and fill that void by removing the profit motive. Um, I'm thinking of Paul Steiger and ProPublica. Pro I'm thinking of uh, Omidyar and The Intercept. Whether you like the quality or editorial slant is, is, is a separate issue. But these are ostensibly you know, organizations doing investigative work. And, and the Daily Caller Foundation on the other side of the, of the political spectrum uh, these are organizations mm-hmm. that are, you know, trying to free themselves of, of free themselves of the profit restraint uh, that that you know that they obviously have. And Bezos uh, is not running a nonprofit, but he sure is dumping you know good money into the post. Um, I'm not sure though that I, I wonder aloud whether you're putting the cart before the horse that that the the that people want the access journalism and therefore that's what that's why Washington goes the way it goes. I'm not I'm not entirely convinced that that that's it. I, I think that access journalism is really a function of a, a couple of things. One, lazy journalists. Two, the the uh oh I would say in the past ten to fifteen years the emergence of journalists as celebrities, right, uh, where reporters want to be inside. They want to be kingmakers. They want to they be part of the conversation rather than reporting the conversation. Uh, an Ezra Klein or a Matty Iglesias would have been unthinkable 25 years ago. Uh, it, it's because they don't have the chops. They don't have the experience and background to write about uh, you know, the White House and, 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 and government. Um, but the star-making machinery of the Internet 
um, has allowed people like that, and this isn't about my liking them or not liking, but it's allowed people who don't have real repertorial skills to become celebrities. So the access culture of, uh, of, of journalism, particularly political journalism, that's important to, to keep in mind. I, I think, right, right. I'm not sure that it's profit-driven. I, th- I think, you know, because uh, there are some terrific reporters out there. I mean, I'm thinking of the folks at the Associated Press uh, in particular who don't play that game. They, they go out there and cover their stories. Now, they don't get the big bang, you know, that a BuzzFeed or a Vox might get, and, and perhaps that's problematic, but I'm not so sure that it's market-driven, you know, I'm not so sure that it's it's that that access journalism is simply well. That's what people are buying. I, I I'm right. I'm, I'm not going to say it isn't, but I I I I just don't quite. I'm not quite convinced that there's that connect. There yeah, yet. let's let's hope there isn't. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, we uh, we th- we've been a little bit long, but hopefully uh, everybody has stuck with us because this was a great, great episode. Uh, got a lot of lot of stuff covered. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And you know, I look forward to, uh, as always, uh, reading your posts and and reading above the law and seeing uh, what what kind of trouble and shit you're stirring up. <laughs> yeah, well, both of you. And again, let us know when you're in the neighborhood, because I, I at least am usually here. Oh, you got it. Yeah. All right, guys, I'm going to ring off. All right. Thank you. Bye now. Peace out. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Uh, first things first, you should be listening to us through some subscription device. And if you are, you should give us a review on that device because that helps us reach more people. Share this this episode wherever you can. If you're listening, if you aren't li- haven't downloaded the Legal Talk Network app. You can do that and listen to the show through that, as well as all the other shows that the Legal Talk Network puts out. If you are going to see anyone over the next few weeks, as we're in the holiday season, be sure to tell them, why aren't you listening to the Legal Talk Network? And more importantly, why aren't you listening to Thinking Like a Lawyer? Those seem like good things for you to do. Otherwise, we will talk to you on a future episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Thanks. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.